Hey folks, Ryan Kennedy here. Welcome back to the podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Kirk Wohler, who's a doctor of osteopathic medicine, integrative and functional medicine physician, and really specializes in treating some complex medical conditions like autism, autoimmune conditions, neurological disorders. And so I brought him on the show today to really dive into autism specifically, because this is a condition where the prevalence has been skyrocketing over the last several decades. And I get a lot of people I work with who have kids or nephews or nieces who are on the autism spectrum and really don't know what's going to be the best thing for them to do. You know, there's not a ton of good information out there. There is, but it's hard to find. And so I brought Dr. Kirk on today to really dive into this. So uh, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm curious in your background, what got you interested in integrative and functional medicine and in particular, particularly your focus on autism? God, that goes a long way. So I graduated uh, 1995. I did an internship in Arizona. And then from there, I went into private practice. I actually relocated back to San Diego. And I was working with uh, a, a nutritional doctor, integrative doc. I, I didn't really know what those terms meant at that time but I had gone to a few conferences, was kind of intrigued by some of the information I was learning. And one day we received a flyer in the mail for something called a DAN conference, Defeat Autism Now is what it was called at that time. Went to this conference, totally blown away, totally overwhelmed by all the information. But I recognized that some of the things these doctors were talking about with regards to the autistic kids, gut problems, food sensitivity issues, environmental factors were things that I was seeing in my practice with adults. And it was within a week or two, we started getting phone calls into my practice. Basically, my office manager came to me and says, are you treating autism? And I said, well, I went to this conference. Well, it turned out registering for the conference, it was being put on by something called the Autism Research Institute, which is actually based in San Diego. They I checked yes on the box. Would I be willing to do this kind of work? And that was how it started. So I started uh, seeing some kids from that, from that point forward. As far as my work in the integrative functional medicine world, there was sort of an overlap in time where I was working in the autism community, but I was also doing training seminars with a doctor by the name of Bill Timmons who started a lab many years ago called Biohealth Laboratory. And he was, a, he was a genius and really forward thinker. And that's where I started to understand the concepts of health and nutrition and medicine, specialized lab testing. And I started seeing how that overlapped with some of the issues with the autistic kids. I guess for myself, I, I grew up with my mom was always into nutrition, so she taught me some of those concepts. And my, my dad, as I got older, is into in becoming a teenager before going off to college, was also very much that way as well. And so even through medical school, a lot of the people in my medical school class were either chiropractors or naturopaths, interestingly enough. And so there was, I was surrounded by people who were more alternative-minded, thinking that way. And so even through medical school, I would read books on supplements, botanicals, dietary intervention, along with my other core curriculum. So by the time I actually got into, out of my internship, I was already somewhat immersed in this world of, of natural integrative medicine. So it was, an, it was an easy transition for me. I love that. And I'm sure everyone listening in has heard of autism, or maybe even knows a child who's on the spectrum. But for some context, can you explain exactly what autism is? Well, from a classic psychiatric standpoint, they break it down into three categories. So behavioral issues, communication problems, uh, and then they, you also have just sort of, you know, language issues, what's called stereotypical behavior. Um, and, and then you sort of break it out from there, that sort of the traditional diagnostic you know, coding aspect. Typically, how it's defined is as a neurodevelopmental disorder that impairs a child's ability to interact normally socially, communicate appropriately, and then having what are called sensory or motor imbalances that really affect their ability to function in our world in a more normal way. And there can be mild situations with that or very, very severe. 
from a, a more integrative medicine standpoint, the way I always look at it is, to me, autism, the more I've learned about it, is really a brain disorder, okay, that, effect, that is affected by many other things in our body, the gut, the immune system, the hormones, nutrition. It's not just a neurodevelopmental problem. Um, neurodevelopmental intervention is important, but so is medical intervention. And that's what's often lost from the medical community is they don't really understand the concepts of diet, nutrition, gut dysregulation, chronic infections, and how that affects an autistic individual. One other key aspect too, is that the reality is, is that there are different types of autism. You know, most of the kids, and when I say kids, that could also mean teenagers, adults, right? Because it's they're going to grow into that. They will have some core key, you know, key issue problems, eye contact, environmental awareness, socialization, but there can be different reasons for it and, and how it manifests and how it gets triggered. So we can talk about some of that too, but it's a, it's a big problem. And it's a, as you mentioned in your intro, it's not an issue that's going away. It's actually getting worse. And that's what's concerning today. Yeah, it's from, from the research I was doing, it's the fastest growing developmental disability in the US right now. And, you know, a lot of people I've heard kind of argue this topic of the increase in prevalence is only because of different diagnostic tools. I know in the 1980s, they grouped, you know, Asperger's and other conditions all into the autism spectrum, from my understanding. But even if you just look at the last 15 years, you know, from 2006, it was about one in 150 kids. Now, as of, you know, last year, 2020, it's one in 54. Um, so what, what would be some of the top contributing factors of why this condition is increasing so rapidly in its prevalence? Well, one thing you too you to realize is that California has very good data collection. So the big thing is, is when you look and say, well, if it were all just about oh, just recognizing it more and diagnosing it more. It's like, well, where are all the autistic adults, right? That, you know, should have manifested, you know, because when, when I was in medical school back many years ago, where are all the autistic adults now? They're, they're not there. So we're, what we're really truly seeing is a problem that is manifesting really over the past, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been in that, in this world for almost 24 years. Um, but as you mentioned, it's really escalated. In my assessment, and a lot of the research is showing, is that it's very much influenced by environmental toxicity. So whether that's or, you know, organophosphate, um, glyphosate certainly has a link to it. Um, that clearly is a problem. But I think it goes beyond that. You know, I, I think that you know, the, the issue of developmental aspects in how all of us develop the more that we pollute our environment, the greater we have an epigenetic um, influence on our body. And that is something that clearly has, I think is contributing to this problem. Now, I've been around long enough to, to know that certain aspects of certain vaccines are a contributing factor as well. I still have plenty of kids in my practice where a vaccine reaction triggered problems. And I don't care if you call it autism or call it, you know, encephalopathy, whatever you want to, it's a, it's a regression into that problem because of some kind of immune dysregulation, inflammatory reaction that took place. I can't sit there and say that all kids with autism is purely linked to a vaccine reaction, but certainly many are. Yeah, no, and it's but, a multitude of factors like you're describing. Yeah, I mean, it's even, a multitude, exactly. When you look at the increased body burden and just toxic exposure from our modern lifestyles, and you know, look at the data of how uh, a pregnant woman really uses the fetus almost like through a way of getting toxins out of her body. So when they measure the umbilical cord and all the different chemicals that are being fed to this fetus, developing fetus, it makes sense that you know a lot of these conditions can absolutely have a multitude of reasons why. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the argument really falls short is a lot of people will, will point the finger at vaccines and then other people will say, oh, that can't be, that can't be. But it's just one of many factors that are at play here. Very much so. It's what's you know tragic about it is I, I consult with people all over the world. And so you know the prevalence is manifesting you know in many different places, not just here in the United States. 
Um, and then of course we know that our, our food is becoming more nutrient deficient, our, our earth is becoming more polluted. So as you mentioned, right, it's a multitude of things uh, that have that impact. And for some people it's a little bit more than others, but you know, it's, um, there's not a cause, that's, that's, that's the key element. There's not one cause that yep. is specific to everybody. And they've actually never found that genetic code, right? The, the key genetics. There are genetics that can influence and maybe increase the, the potential for the development of autism, but there's not a genetic switch that's unique to everybody or all cases of autism. Why do you think it's so much more common in boys than girls? Because I'm looking at some of the statistics, it's you know three or four times more pre prevalent in, in males than females. You know, that has been bantered around for years as to what would be some of the reasons for that. It probably goes back to what you just mentioned, um, detoxification capacity, the potential for increased oxidative stress. Um, there were some researchers years ago that looked into this and, and, and looked at the fact that when they looked at uh, neuronal culture mediums of nerve cells, and they actually implemented heavy metals. So they actually put mercury and other metals in these, in these cultures. When they added testosterone, it exacerbated the neurotoxicity of the heavy metals. So that may play a, a, a bigger role than we realize. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, again, I don't think there's just one answer for that, but I think it probably is just a, a, a capacity to detoxify, neutralize toxins. And I think some of it is linked to the hormonal aspect that these, that these kids have. Yeah. And what's been your experience with, with reversing this condition? When you work with children, I'm, I'm sure it varies greatly on a case-by-case -case basis, but yeah. you know, on some of your big success stories, do you see a complete reversal or is it more so you're going for an improvement in symptomology? Where do you- Combination. Usually... Okay. So I actually have had some kids you know, completely lose their diagnosis, you know, graduate high school, graduate college, uh, and essentially go off and have no remnants, if you will, of their autistic condition. Um, it's all in a spectrum of time, right? I mean, I've been in practice long enough to have worked with kids who were three or four or five years old when I first saw them who are now young adults. Um, and so we do have that. There are plenty of kids that are still autistic, but they function at a higher level. And the, the, the key element of this is that the earlier you can intervene, the better chance you have. It's just like anything else in medicine and health. The, the earlier you can start intervention, the greater your odds at improvement. I always look at it this way. I always tell people, it, it doesn't matter the severity of your child, teenager, or loved one you know, who might be an adult. It doesn't really, the, the severity of their condition doesn't necessarily dictate whether they can be helped or not. Everybody can be helped at some level. Not everybody can recover. Not everybody will lose their diagnosis. And one of the key elements or aspects of this I learned many years ago is I had a family, they had a very severe autistic teenager. And he wasn't going to recover, right? He wasn't going to lose his diagnosis. He was always going to be autistic but he functioned at a very low level. In fact, he had a lot of behavioral problems, aggressive, tantrum, public outburst. It got to the point where the parents felt like prisoners in their own home. And what the father said to me was, Dr. Waller, we don't, we're not expecting a miracle. We realize our son is severely compromised. But if we can get to the point where we can go out as a family go to a restaurant and not have it turn into a nightmare scenario, that will be a win for us. And we were able to accomplish that. That was, to them, that was the pinnacle of recovery in that respect. And I, I respected that because it was understanding the limitations of the situation, but also understanding that, yeah, we can work on things. We can improve a person's condition, regardless of the condition they're in now. Makes sense. And when it comes to testing and interventions, what would you say are some of the top, you know, two or three tests that you would want to run for a child that comes to you with, with this disorder? And then from there, kind of what you use that data for to then 
make guidance in terms of, in, you know, whether it be nutrition supplements and, and the rest? So a couple things, it's, it's important for people to understand that many autistic individuals, and by the way, let's, let's, let's branch out a bit and not just the autism, let's just think of special needs. Special needs could be, you know, autistic, autistic spectrum, sensory processing, for example, even although they're not classically calling it that anymore, but Asperger syndrome, for example, there's a spectrum of these types of disorders. Most everybody with those has some comorbid conditions and comorbid conditions of gut problems, food sensitivities, tendency towards allergies, for example, um, headache potentials, all of these underlying issues. One of the things that often comes up and makes it a special needs individual situation worse is problems in the digestive tract. Now that could be inflammation, that could be bacterial overgrowth, that could be fungal over overgrowth of yeast or candida, a lot of food reactions. So what we're doing is we're coming in and saying, okay, we know these things exist. Let's see if they exist for you. Okay. And how of intense of a problem is that? And so that then dictates the kind of testing we do. I always do a test called an organic acids test. It's a comprehensive profile that looks at different metabolic markers that indicate either imbalance in our metabolism or the existence of certain toxins. Now we can produce toxins from our own biochemical reactions that could mean certain things or could be intervened with, with regards to certain supplements. But there are also toxins that get produced within our digestive tract. So for example, we all have candida that lives in our gut. But if we have a healthy microbiome and the bacteria that live in our digestive tract are functioning and we have a good immune system, the candida is not problematic, but candida is highly opportunistic. It likes to get invasive. It can lead to leaky gut, for example. It can lead to maldigestion but it can also create chemical compounds that circulate through our body and can interfere with our brain or nervous system. So we're always assessing that with regards to an autistic individual because they're highly susceptible and sensitive to the presence of these types of chemicals. So that organic acid test to me is absolutely essential. Everybody gets it, it is a focal point in my practice. Yeah. Complete yeah, agreements ahead. there. I'm, I'm glad you dove into the organic acids testing because it's by and far the number one test I run with people I work with due to the variety of data points you get. Because like you mentioned, it's a, able to kind of identify gut overgrowths like candida yeah. and, and other types of pathogens like C. diff. But it also is looking at your vitamins. It's looking at your amino acid status. It's looking at uh, you know your sensitivity to oxalates. It's looking at your mitochondria health, your detoxification pathways. I mean, all these different markers that make it a very good kind of starting place to then branch off and see what needs to be further investigated. And I want to dive a little bit deeper on the topic of candida. I've done shows on this in the past, and many people are aware that candida overgrowth oftentimes ensues after antibiotic use from a high sugar High, high refined carbohydrate, high you know, alcohol consumption in the diet. But when it comes to a child who's let's say breastfed and you know, not drinking alcohol, obviously, probably not eating a ton of these things, uh, what usually causes the, the candida overgrowth? Well, a lot of times is antibiotic use that occurred with, let's say they had repeat ear infections. So a classic thing is you have a kid who's drinking a lot of milk Mm -hmm. Milk causes allergy, they get ear infections, they're put on, you know, um, antibiotics because of that. Um, and then certainly just environmental factors, right? I mean, they, they, they're being exposed to the same environment that we are. And if they're not eating healthy, they're getting exposed to chemicals that alter the microbiome in the gut. So those are kind of the big ones is, is just antibiotic use that depletes gut, gut flora or just ongoing chemical exposure in the environment. One thing about the autistic individuals, so you've worked with people with candida before, and you, you know that a lot of people, adults, they've got either fatigue or brain fog or maybe you know gas and bloating. Yep. And these things likely happen in the autistic individual. They just can't really tell you. But That's what's true. interesting about the many of the autistic kids who tend to be very reactive to the existence of some of these chemicals that candida produces is they almost can act drunk. 
In fact, I've actually had parents tell me that their kids appear like they had alcohol. Well, we know that ethanol is a, is a byproduct of glucose metabolism in yeast cells. Um, they get very goofy, giddy or silly, inappropriate laughter. A lot of self-stimulatory behavior is kicked up in the presence of candida. And then there are other chemical compounds that these yeast also produce that can just create biochemical imbalance yeah. in the body. So and it is a major, major area. And one of the other things about the organic acid test too that can't be overlooked is that there are specific markers on that test that look at mold uh, exposure, particularly to aspergillus mold, which is a common mold. And what we're finding in the autism community is a lot of these kids actually have mold colonization within the digestive system. Some of it probably coming from food, but also environmental factors. And one of the, the bad aspects of mold um, is some of the mycotoxins that they produce. And these are chemical toxins produced by mold that have their own adverse effects. Some are immune toxic, some are neurotoxic. And in the context of autism, there's a particular mycotoxin called ochratoxin, which is relatively common. And it turns out that it can interfere with certain neurotransmitters like dopamine, for example. And so it can actually lead to some of the attention and focusing problems that we see. So that, that organic acid test to me is a must have. I always tell people, if you can only afford one test, okay, to me, start with the oat. Start with the organic acid test. Yep. Uh, some other tests that I do, um, food sensitivity profiles are very important in this population. So looking at uh, immune reactivity to gluten and casein. This is why the gluten casein-free diet has been around for so long, a tried and true intervention because it helps so much. Um, if I can, I'll do a comprehensive stool analysis to look at just markers of inflammation and digestive imbalances. And then I always do um, a hair metals analysis. So to me, one of the other aspects of autism, because as you mentioned, these kids are so susceptible to environmental exposures, we can't rule out even low, you know, low level chronic exposure to different types of heavy metals. It doesn't always just have to be mercury or lead, it could just be other heavy metals in the environment. And we know that heavy metals also have a toxic effect in the brain and nervous system. I do hair testing with kids all over the world because I consult with people all over the world. And I, I've gotten to the point where I can look at a hair analysis and almost get an idea about where they come from. So I, I, there's a group out of, there's an individual I do work with who has a contact in China. Almost all of those kids are really high in lead, mercury, and cadmium. Same like kids in the Middle East. Here in the US, interestingly, we, we have pockets of lead and mercury exposure, um, but we'll see a lot of aluminum, for example, that is something that can be traced back to some of the vaccines and a few other imbalances. And that test is critical. It's also important for me to get an assessment of certain mineral imbalances, sure. whether it's things like zinc or manganese or lithium, for example, which also can have their own adverse effects, you know, either when they're high or low. Got it. So I, I want to get into some of your, your kind of top interventions, because I see these problems all the time. And, you know, especially when it comes to the, the candida overgrowth, the mold and, and mycotoxin exposure environmentally. And so just to kind of start things off, what are some of your favorite binders? You know, if you're working with someone that has the aspergillus, you know, markers on the organic acids test, they have, you know, the fungal overgrowth symptomology. Uh, what do you kind of do with someone in that situation? So when you're talking about mold exposure, right? So you have to break it down into, into two categories. You have the mold and then you have the mycotoxins because they're different, right? So the, the mycotoxin came from the mold. You could have an individual who has they're, they've retained the mycotoxin in the body, but they're no longer being exposed to the mold. So if you're dealing with the mold, it is an organism, it's living. So you need to treat it with antifungals. Okay, that could are, be- yeah, yeah. What are your, some of your favorites? Do you use herbs or pharmaceuticals? Well, I use both. 
So um, in many cases, if I was use a medication, for example, um, I'll do what's called compounded amphotericin B, which is a, a compounded medication as an oral form, has very low absorption, if at all. And it has kind of a similar effect to Nystat, which is a, a very common antifungal for yeast. And that the amphotericin B works really well for certain molds that are harboring in the gut. Not intravenous amphotericin B, oral amphotericin B compounded. Um, there's others like fluconazole or, or itraconazole, also called sporinox, which are helpful for mold infections as well. My preference is not to have to use meds. I'd rather use botanicals. And so there's a lot of them out there that have sort of a broad range effect uh, as just antimicrobials. That could be on yeast, that could be on bacteria, that could be on mold. Um, try, I'm trying to think of individual ones, but, but certain combination products that I use, which is what I tend to use, good ones like Biocytin, mm -hmm. for example, is an excellent product. Great to use, by the way, the Biocytin product is nice because it, it's easy to administer to kids in liquid form. A lot of the liquid botanicals have a really strong taste that the biocytin does, and it actually has a pleasant taste, pretty easy to give to kids. There's other ones out there, you know, GI Microbex, for example, from Designs for Health and, you know, a few others. But I use a lot of that biocytin because it, it's so, you're so flexible with different, you know, age groups and, and types of individuals, uh, and it can be, can be pretty effective that way. So that's, that's treating the mold, right? And then of course, you have to try to find the source. If it's coming from your home, you got to figure out, you know, where it's coming from, because otherwise you're just going to get continually re-exposed. And do you have a test you like for that? Like, I know a lot of people use mold plates. Do you, do you just refer people to a you know, kind of an inspector. You know, anymore, a lot of what I'll have people do, uh, there's a couple of good companies. One's uh, Immunolytics Lab. Mm -hmm. I figure where they're out of. I think they're out of Texas. And then another one is Envirobionics. They've got, um, they've got an excellent profile too. And what those are, those are, you know, collection plates that are put around your home strategically that pick up on mold spores. Both of those are excellent. And those just give you a reference point, you know, what's going on in your environment. And then once you find that, you know, you can actually bring, you know, a mold inspector and a remediation company to come in and try to fix the problem. So the key thing with, with mold is that it's not just treating the person, but if, they're, if, they, if it's their home that's making them toxic, their home has to be treated. I've actually had people where it wasn't their home, it was their office. I've had some kids where it wasn't their home, it was their school um, and their school or their classroom was toxic. And that's usually an easier fix. You can just move the child out yeah. you know, to a different school. And that actually happened with my son when he was in third grade. They, they, um, they had to close the classroom down. It was, it was mold toxic. Um, so that's, that's dealing with the mold. The mycotoxins is a different story, right? Because it's a, it's a separate chemical that gets stored in our body and it can get their lipophilic so they can get stored in our fat, they can get into our cells. And that's where you're really having to use things to detoxify the mycotoxins. So glutathione, for example, is a type of supplement that is a very powerful antioxidant. It's natural to our body. It helps protect our cells. But it also plays a big role in liver detoxification, particularly what's called phase two liver detoxification. It essentially takes a chemical and makes it less toxic, essentially, kind of breaks it down or converts it. And that's a big one because glutathione is very effective at helping to detoxify mycotoxins. You can, you can use, use things special like form, like do you use a liposomal glutathione. I love just the liposomal. Yeah, yeah, the liposomal forms are great. Um, they they generally have always worked, you know, extremely well. I don't do a lot of oral glutathione, you know, as like a capsule or powder. It doesn't really have high absorption, for example. But the liposomals have great absorption. You can kind of get there with you know N-acetylcysteine, for example, as a precursor to glutathione. I think. By and large, most people who've got mycotoxins, at least at some point, should utilize some liposomal glutathione. 
you know, as the end product to really boost up the detox effect. One top one topic on that, Dr. Kirk, I've been uh, playing around with uh, myself and also some of you know my my own clients is nebulizing uh, a reduced glutathione uh, for you know when there's environmental exposure and obviously the, some of these spores can harbor in the yeah. respiratory tract and cause all sorts of you know sinus congestion and chronic. Uh, respiratory issues is that something you've utilized in your practice anything like nebulized I, I have. And you could do the same thing with antifungals so if you've got an individual who's had mold exposure it's not just in their gut it could be in their sinuses you can actually do intranasal um so like intranasal spornox for example or, or amphotericin b so yeah that can be effective and you can very much do the same thing with the intranasal glutathione um, yeah i don't do a lot of the the intranasals with the kids, particularly the little kids, and particularly the autistic kids, because they're so um, sensitive, you know, from a touch standpoint. And, and a lot of little kids, it's hard to do nasal sprays with. And do you but do that? Any, certainly be effective. Certainly be effective for adults. Do you implore any type of uh, you know liver support or detoxification support prior to killing off you know these? Always. pathogenic organisms because i've noticed a lot you know especially with the population you're referring to the type of detox and herxheimer reactions they can get when there's all this die-off going on of of the fungus or the molds or the yeast can be quite disruptive yeah. so so what do you like to use for that so one of the things that i never in an autistic individual really with anybody jump right into mold detoxification okay it may be something I identify but we're always going to do some preliminary work. So I designed a, a, a method of approach to the, to this world of integrated medicine for autism. And it honestly, you can use it in other areas. It's called the four pillar approach. And the four pillars are, we're not going to get very far in most anybody, autistic individual or not, if we don't work on diet and improve the quality of diet. So diet is really important because it's going to bring in more nutrient dense foods. And we're also by eating healthier, eliminating a lot of toxic substances that tend to overwhelm our body. Yeah. And then we've got to do foundational supplements, the foundational nutrients beyond just diet. I take supplements on a daily basis, um, but I try to eat healthy as well in the autism community. That's critically important. And I actually see it get bypassed quite a bit, which I don't understand. But many of these kids have such limited diets, either because they're so picky in their eating or they yeah. have a pathological feeding problem, they're just nutrient deprived in various areas. So a lot of the foundational nutrients, certain vitamins, minerals, calcium, magnesium, whatever, help to fill in those gaps nutritionally. And when you actually look at the biochemistry and when you use foundational nutrients, whether it's a multivitamin, mineral, essential fats, antioxidants, it works throughout the entire body. It works at a cellular level, but it also works within the cells of the liver. So you're almost automatically supporting liver function just by improving the quality of diet and using those foundational nutrients. We then have to look at the third pillar is gut function. Do we have overgrowth scenarios of bacteria? Do we have parasites? Do we have inflammation? And because if we do, if we've got an individual who's overwhelmed with all of this other stuff, if you start sending them down the path of induced detoxification and all of that stuff hits their gut and it can't go anywhere, that's when you start to see the detox reactions, the Herxheimer reactions and these detox reactions. So we're always doing preparatory work up to the point of doing active detox. And that's the, been the way that I've approached for years now, because by the time, whether it's mold, whether it's chemicals, whether it's heavy metals, whatever it is, those things are foreign, but we have to be prepped in order to handle that. And um, on the topic of diet, yeah. I'd like to dive in a little deeper on that. Uh, sure. You mentioned the elimination of gluten and casein. So really avoiding most grains and, and dairy. Um, what do you typically in a perfect world? I know it's hard to get, you know, children to comply to certain nutrition changes, but in a perfect world, what, what would a basic framework look like? Would you stick really low carb? Would you restrict fruits and other uh, whole, whole food carbohydrates as well in, the, in a scenario like this? Well, I guess it depends on what we're kind of dealing with, but sort of in a, in a 
kind of a perfect kind of world. It would certainly be like a whole food diet, perhaps a little bit more paleo, certainly organic, non-GMO. Um, I don't think it's necessary to be restricting all fruits, certain fruits certainly that are, you know, very high, you know, high in sugar and whatnot can be, can be limited. Probably in, uh, if I were to pick a diet, and I know you're gonna, you're gonna try and pigeonhole me into like the one diet, right? Um, if, I, if I had to step back and I look at all of the different varieties of diets that are out there for the autism community, that would tend to be sort of broad reaching in its effect. It would be something called the specific carbohydrate diet. Yep, I'm familiar. And, and the reason is, is that gut problems are such an issue in autism, whether it's gut inflammation, maldigestion, malabsorption, or bacterial fungal overgrowth, the elimination or at least reduction in disaccharides, these complex sugars that are sometimes challenging to digest, they often act as a fuel for pathogenic organisms in the gut. And so I think if we can eat a really healthy specific carbohydrate diet, that probably as far as a diet in that community would tend to work the best. Um, and it is, it, so it's not eliminating all fruits, but what you find over time is that the implementation of the specific carbohydrate diet, even though fruits, some fruits are allowed, basically reduces these opportunistic organisms over time because it brings more healing to the digestive tract, more bacterial diversity, uh, and then just reduction in opportunistic bugs. Got it. And it, in addition, coming back to the, the detox strategies, um, and this goes for the mold and mycotoxins, as well as heavy metals and other things that are likely also a, a factor for, for this community. Um, you mentioned the NAC is a precursor to glutathione. You mentioned a, a good liposomal glutathione orally. Uh, do you use any uh, binders like activated charcoal or zeolite or uh, other yeah. types of compounds in this scenario? Very much so. I mean, for years we used activated charcoal uh, and still do for like die off Herxheimer reactions. Uh, activator charcoal is a good binder of certain mycotoxins. Anymore, I don't tend to use it by itself. Um, it can be a bit constipating in some individuals. So you usually have to combine it with some magnesium. Sure. But it, it does work. Uh, there's a particular binder I use that I like, a GI Detox Plus, which you know comes from biobotanical research. Um, I know uh, Cellcore has some binders that I've not personally used, but I hear good things about them. Um, Quicksilver Scientific has a good binder, the ultra sensitive binder, I think it's called, uh, that tends to work pretty well. All of those are more combination kind of binders. So the zeolite's kind of interesting in that, that actually is part of the biobotanical, uh, the GI Detox Plus. Um, yeah, that's an interesting binder in how it works chemically. So, but yeah, I mean, whether it's activated charcoal or just sort of combination of different binders, that's always a must for mold scenarios because people need to realize that when you're talking about mycotoxins, the mycotoxins of mold, if they're coming into your body, right? Let's say through food or the environment, well, you don't want them to get absorbed. So the binder helps to trap them and keep them in the gut. But when you're inducing detox with N-acetylcysteine or glutathione, you're mobilizing those mycotoxins that have been stored in your body and you're dumping them through your liver into your gut. Some of them will go through urine. And so whether something's coming into your digestive tract from your liver or coming in through your digestive system from your mouth, you're using the binder to bind them up so that they don't get reabsorbed downstream and they're eliminated in your stool. Yeah. And this, this is one of the reasons I love to use binders pre-sauna. I don't know if you would agree with that. And obviously it depends with, with kids. Oftentimes uh, sauna yeah. is contraindicated uh, more so with adults. Uh, I find it's a very helpful strategy to support the detoxification of when, when you are going through a sauna de um, session, when a lot of these things can become mobilized, you want to have something that can grab onto it and help excrete it out of the body. That's a great idea. I mean, that's uh, it's a great approach because you've already got you've already got it sitting there, right? Exactly. As you induce, you know, lipolysis with the with the sauna and get things mobilized. So Precisely. certainly nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 
and and on the topic of probiotics, I know you know as you're killing things off, whether it be in a candida or mold or fungal scenario, um, what are your some of your go-to strains or products in that regard? Do you just have them eat fermented foods and vegetables, or do you have uh, lacto bifido blend you like or spore forming? I know there's all sorts of different. There's a number options. of them. I mean, they've actually done some research with like some of the bifidobacter species and lactobacillus on mycotoxins. So I, the way I phrase those to patients is I, I call those that more the conventional traditional probiotics of the lactobacillus bifidobacter. Those are just great for overall microbiome diversity um, and just sort of a broad effect on bacteria and yeast. So those are great. The more soil-based or what are called spore-forming bacteria, the, what are called the bacillus species, I generally use those if we're dealing with a clostridia infection, a clostridia problem, which is another topic that tends to be an issue too in autism as well. So I'll often use those, those soil-based organisms for clostridia problems and the more traditional conventional probiotics for yeast, for microbiome diversity, for high oxalate kind of situations. And you I use, can rattle off some brands if you want, but that that's kind of you know what I use. Yeah, yeah. If you if you want to, I, I always love giving my audience kind of tangible takeaways, and so whenever they hear things like this, they're like, "Cool, bifidobacteria yeah. strains." Like, where do I go from there? So, if there's a particular product that you use in your practice, you find really useful. I use a lot as a as a just general probiotic. Um, it's a multi-stream probiotic of bifidobacter lactobacillus called uh, um, a probiosup or, <clears throat> oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> we could, we could Pro, a probiotic support formula. That's, a, that's it. Probiotic support formula comes from New Beginnings Nutritionals. So that's kind of my go-to sort of just a general probiotic for digestive health. Okay. Right. And, and in the case of a fungal issue, candida issue, do you find good results using a Saccharomyces boulardii? In the autism community, I'm, I'm always a little bit hesitant. Why is so, that? So yes, on, on paper, it's effective as a general statement, but I have found in the autism community, you gotta be careful. And because there's a fair amount of the autistic kids that have sensitivity to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and even though they're not the same thing, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae and the Saccharomyces boulardii, there's just a cross-reactivity effect that sometimes happens. Interesting. And I've, I've only had that really it be an issue in the autism community. And it's not universal, but it's, it's, it's come up enough over the years where I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily going to use that as an individual agent aggressively. I know other docs who've had success with other types of patients where SAC-B worked great. So I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that all of us should have in our toolbox to use in certain clinical situations. The autistic kids, I'm just a little bit leery, Got you it. know, with, with high amounts of it. There's actually a little bit of SAC-B in that probiotic support formula, uh, but I'm talking about individual use of it, you know. So another thing from a probiotic standpoint, oxalates. So you brought up the oxalates with regards to the organic acid test. Um, high potency probiotics of the same kind of species, lactobacillus, bifidobacter, are often helpful at degrading oxalates in the gut, but you usually got to get the dose fairly high. And so there's a couple brands out there I've used, one called VSL3. There's another one called Visbiome, which is sort of the replacement for VSL3. You're getting upwards of about 225 billion organisms per dose, which... Wow can be great for adults, sometimes too much for kids, um, but it can definitely lower the oxalate situations. Interesting, because I know that, you know, especially people that have candida overgrowth, fungal issues, they tend to be extremely sensitive to yeah. high oxalate foods. So I always end up, you know, cutting those out of their diet. But with, uh, when it comes to this high potency, I mean, that's a, a tremendous amount of, of colony yeah, forming units. Is. Are you concerned at all about it leading to a bacterial overgrowth? You know, too much bacteria coming into the small intestine? There's always that possibility. So I would never use it in anybody who was diagnosed with SIBO okay. or that I suspected might have SIBO. 
So if they tell me that, you know, gosh, whenever I take a probiotic, I feel terrible. I bloat yeah. up, you know, yeah. in that, those cases, I'm like, okay, this is not, this is not the thing for you right now. Um, and on that topic of SIBO, you know, kind of as a transition there, um, what type of interventions do you, because obviously probiotics are typically a no-go. I don't know how you feel about the soil-based spore forming, but I know lacto-bifido blends are usually not a good idea. Um, and I know, you know, that specific carbohydrate diet you mentioned is usually appropriate in that condition. Uh, do you use any specific antimicrobials for patients with SIBO? Um, pretty much kind of the same things, you know, you can get good effects with the biocidin, the GI microbax, some of those combination botanicals. Got it. SIBO, you really need to address it from a comprehensive digestive standpoint. It's not just bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, but it's trying to figure out, well, why is there bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine? Why, why, why did that occur in the first place? Were they on, were they on a bunch of proton pump inhibitors? Do, did they have an infection of some sort? Is there some kind of anatomical defect? Did it occur post-surgery? So you have to try to figure out the why, and then you can better off figure out what to do about it. Because you can give antimicrobials, whether it's antibiotics or botanicals, and improve somebody's symptoms, but it's usually temporary. It may not necessarily lead to long-term resolution of their SIBO. So SIBO to me is, it's a, it's a, you have to take a comprehensive approach in looking at digestion coming from the mouth to the stomach, okay? From the pancreas, bile acid production from the liver, activation of the migrating motor complex in the small intestine, activating functional aspects of the large intestine. And once you've got all of that working, then you can be more successful at lowering the load of bacteria in the small intestine permanently not just temporarily. Um, and then of course, right, depending on how long somebody's had it, how much damage there has been done, you know, that can take time to heal from. But you're right about the specific carbohydrate diet. I mean, it was, in fact, if you go back to the beginnings of that diet, um, it was developed back in the 50s, I think. One of the things they were using it for was bacterial overgrowth within the digestive system. They probably were more relating it to irritable bowel of the large intestine. They didn't recognize SIBO at that point, at least weren't calling it that. Mm -hmm. But one of the fundamental aspects of the SCD diet is decreasing those fermentable carbohydrates that are a fuel source for those bacteria, whether they're in the large intestine or the small intestine. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And oftentimes people get immediate improvements in bloating and gas and symptomology related to digestive distress when they start cutting down on those fermentable. Yeah. By the way, binders are important in SIBO too. Okay, good to know. Yeah. And you would use similar ones as you yep. rattled off. Now, yep. one more thing as we kind of wrap up, do you, what are your, what's your opinion on ozone therapy? And when it comes to a lot of these gut overgrowths and mold and mycotoxin exposure and detox, you know, I've heard it, I, I've, I've used it myself on multiple. Yeah, it, it can be very good. Um, Rectal ozone, you know, can certainly be effective, you know, with obviously gut problems in the large intestine. Um, I think it can be very helpful. I think it could really be helpful too for clostridia problems. Yeah. The clostridia bacteria are really nasty. They're, they're, they're anaerobic. Um, and so any way that we can, you know, sort of challenge the clostridia that can be extremely helpful. I've not been able to do that too much with the autistic community. You know, it's not something that's either readily available or accessible or even well tolerated. Got it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I would be in favor of it for sure. Is it something you use in your practice? Not particularly. I mean, I, most of my practice anymore is working remotely, yep. you know? So, um, you know, I, I know at one point here in the U.S., it was tightly regulated based on what state you were in for example. So if you had more of a brick and mortar practice that could be used that way. Sure. Um, what, what's been your experience? I love ozone. Uh, similar as you, I've never used it you know, on anyone else but myself, but I bought a generator I have sitting here in front of me uh, from Longevity Resources, one of the reputable uh, manufacturers. And between in drinking ozonated water, using rectal insufflation, limb bagging, uh, I just think it's a great therapeutic yeah. tool to just have in your toolbox, you know, and in the case that you do become ill from something or, 
you know, pick up some pathogen while you're traveling, whatever it is. I think it's an amazing way to help the body support the body. And it just seems to be so broad acting in its antimicrobial effects um, that I just find it to be really fascinating. So I was just curious. Yeah, if that's great. You've, you've used, but it sounds like you're in favor of it, just not something you have a ton of. I'd definitely be in with. favor of it. I just haven't, yeah, haven't done that, but that, that would be something uh, maybe speak to you more about. Yeah. Get, get more information, your experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Uh, well, as we wrap up, Dr. Herc, this has been amazing. We've really covered a lot of ground and really given the listeners a lot of insights into, you know, everything from, you know, the stuff we talked about with toxic load and, and autism to a lot of gut stuff we kind of transitioned into. From my understanding, you're still seeing patients via telemedicine. Can you tell people more about that? You know, how they can get in touch and yeah. what that process looks like? So uh, a couple of ways for just, you know, general consults. I have a private practice. My website is mysunrisecenter.com. And I've worked with people, through, you know, like I said, around the world, throughout the United States. So that's the, you can check out my website there. Our email is scmedicalcenter at gmail.com. And then if they're parents of autistic kids or special needs kids, you know, that are wanting some you know, additional assistance, I do do private consults through my private practice as well. But we also have another website and that's called Autism Recovery System. And autismrecoverysystem.com is a biomedical information membership website for parents or caregivers with autistic or special needs kids where they can interact with me at a distance. They can post questions to me. We have educational material. We have an entire course on biomedicine within that website. And then finally, for just pretty much everybody who's looking for access to different testing, there's a website called labtestsplus.com that does provide access to some of the tests we talked about, whether it's the organic acid test, the mycotox test, chemical assessment, hair analysis. And when people order those tests through that website, they get sent to us and we do a, a written interpretation on the relevant markers of that, just kind of giving some suggestions on, on, on things to do from an action step standpoint. So those would be kind of the main ways that people can access information that I have either online. And then of course you can go content webinars that we've done over the years. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. And I'll put all those links in the show notes for anyone listening in that wants to learn more and go check out these resources. So Dr. Kirk, thanks again for coming on the show and I really appreciate your time. And this has been a really really awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at briankennedyshow.com. I encourage you to share your biggest takeaway with me on social media. Tag me on Instagram at Kennedy and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, please leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as I can with this information. Join me for my next episode where I'll be interviewing leading wellness professionals to empower you in your health journey. Until next time.